1: Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong
3: and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. We're looking forward to this conversation. We're joined by author and columnist Gordon Chang, widely recognized authority on what's happening in China, Chinese-American relationships, and that sort of thing. Gordon's recent column caught my eye. China's economy is collapsing. Here's why you should worry. Gordon, welcome. How are you, sir?
4: I'm fine, thank you. Thank you so much, Joe.
3: Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. So it's funny. Uh, Jack and I and Jack's off today, but we're, we're both really into Chinese American relations, the rise of China, China's future and that sort of thing. While as Rush Limbaugh might have put it the the drive by media just always repeats china's the great rising economic power china will soon eclipse us they'll soon have the biggest economy on earth and a lot of us are over here shouting whoa 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 china has some serious problems going on so glad to hear you writing about it tell us about the current state of china economically and then we'll get to what it might mean down the road
4: yeah china right now has an economy which is perhaps zero growth maybe negative If there is any sort of positive growth at all, it's probably less than 1%. And and the reason is, of course, the COVID lockdowns, which still are plaguing the country, including still plaguing Beijing and Shanghai, where they're putting new neighborhoods into restrictive measures all the time. But they're they're more fundamental problems. The most fundamental problem is that Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, is moving back to a state-dominated economy. We know that doesn't work. Also, they've got too much debt um and that debt problem is a, is a something that they can't solve but it's not just the economy this is in the context of a country which really is in distress uh tell
3: tell us more about that sort of distress i mean because the COVID will come and the COVID would go but I, I know a lot of the problems are are uh, structural if you will
4: yes the, the problems are structural and the most structural problem of all is demography China right now has a population of, let's say, 1.41 billion, which is the number from the most recent uh, reporting of the National Bureau of Statistics. Um, most people expect China, by the end of this century, will have a population of maybe 500 million, maybe 600 million if they're lucky. Um, so really, this is the biggest demographic fall in history in the absence of war or disease. No country has ever gone through that before. So we don't know how China will navigate it. But all of its other problems, um, and there are a lot of them, have to be seen in the context of a rapidly shrinking country.
3: Well, and you couple that with Xi Jinping, and uh, when, you know, I can't remember when it was, but uh, Jack and I had long assumed that uh, Xi Jinping, uh, Stalin, a lot of the communist leaders just wanted the, the legitimacy, the promises of communism, but were really running kind of an old-fashioned dictatorship behind the scenes. They didn't believe their own rhetoric. But it it seems, you know, that Xi Jinping actually believes in communism, that it will work, and that it's time to run in this unruly capitalist thing that's that's bought them everything they have.
4: Yes. um, We never know, of course, what's in someone's mind. But it's clear that Xi Jinping reveres Mao Zedong. He's consistently felt that way over the course of decades. And we've seen his actions as ruler, which is to move away from the liberalization of the economy in China, which created all that growth during three and a half decades. Also, he believes in totalitarian social controls, and we're seeing the return of those so that China has really moved back to a society that is starting to resemble the 1950s, only with high-speed railroads and buildings and, and skyscrapers. Um, but really, what he's doing is he's taking the vitality out of China. And that ultimately is something that has occurred. It occurred in the first years of the People's Republic, of course, but it's also occurred during the imperial era from time to time, where China's leaders closed up their country. And it's always resulted in disaster, Joe.
3: And uh, in your piece, which folks can read at com, link to the Daily Caller. Um, it's. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, there have been a handful of run on runs on banks. There's a very, very fragile situation with the real estate market. So, I mean, if all of those birds come home to roost, and and China goes into a severe state of unrest or or uh, recession, obviously that'll affect the world economy. Uh, do you want to talk about that just a little bit before we get into other geopolitical questions?
4: Sure. Um, It will affect the global economy, but much less than we think. You know, everyone Hmm. says China is an engine of global growth. And yes, China does have and has had growth. But the point is China's growth has come at the expense of other countries because of their stealing of intellectual property and their predatory trade practices. So if China were, for instance, just to magically disappear off the face of the earth, it actually would be good for growth of other countries because To be an engine of global growth, you've got to buy the goods and services of other countries to create growth elsewhere. And the engine of global growth today, as it's been consistently since the end of World War II, is the United States, because we run these enormous trade deficits with others. We're creating growth around the world. The Chinese are taking away growth from other countries.
3: Author and columnist uh, Gordon Chang is on the line. We're talking about China's economic fragility and what it might mean. And uh, then you you hit me with, you hit us with a sentence, a couple of sentences that I thought were just terrific and I did not see coming in your piece. You ask, why should we care? Well, for decades, the primary basis of legitimacy of the Communist Party has been the continually, continual delivery of. Prosperity. Now, because of the accelerating downturn, the party's only remaining basis of legitimacy is nationalism. That was the twist that I did not see coming. What's that likely to look like?
4: Well, Xi Jinping um, believes that the Communist Party has a right to rule. He knows that his primary basis of legitimacy is gone. He can no longer assure prosperity, which means that he's got to show a strong China. Now, a strong China means military misadventure abroad. It means, for instance, going after India, Japan, the Philippines, Taiwan, even us. We've seen some very hostile maneuvers by the Chinese air force and navy over the last couple months. These guys are just sort of looking for a war. Um, you know, they may say they don't want it, but they're taking actions that can lead to it. And so, therefore, we've got to be prepared that uh, not as the Pentagon says, that if war comes with China, it'll be next decade. We've got to be prepared for the here and now.
3: So you think it's a Putin-like effort to provoke outsiders to attack China, to rally the people to the party?
4: It would probably be China attacking others in the first instance. We saw this in June 2020 with the sneak attack on India. We have seen this, of course, with these very provocative air maneuvers, um, not only with regard to Taiwan, but also last month, May 26th, they uh, almost tried to, uh, they almost brought down an Australian reconnaissance plane in international airspace. So this is really dangerous stuff that they're doing. And so, you know, the law of averages says that there's going to be a collision or there's going to be deaths and that could lead to the spiral downward from which there is no recovery.
3: If you were to advise the Joe Getty administration on dissuading the Chinese from from pushing too far and provoking the sort of conflict you're talking about, what would you suggest? Is there any dissuading them?
4: I think that there is, because they realize that we're a stronger country. Um, what they don't believe is that the United States has the political will to defend our friends and allies. And a matter of fact, Ukraine is a great demonstration of a failure of deterrence. We were far stronger. Our allies were far stronger than Russia, and and yet we failed to stop the Russians from attacking. Uh, The Chinese look at that, and, and I think the way that we stop them from going after Taiwan or whatever is we make it clear that we will fight. And the way to do that is, for instance, to say to Taiwan, we will defend you, we'll give you a mutual defense treaty, We'll put our soldiers on the island as a tripwire. We'll preposition military supplies. We will do those things that make it clear that we will fight. People will say that that's extraordinarily risky, and I say yes, it is. But because of misguided policy over the course of decades, our policies, we've created a situation where every – option is exceedingly dangerous and the most dangerous option is to continue with policies that have put us into this predicament in the first place
3: gordon chang is an independent voice taking a look at china we always are interested in his opinion uh he's the author of the coming collapse of china you can follow gordon on twitter at gordon g chang Uh, gordon's always interesting to catch up thanks so much for the time
4: well thank you joe i really appreciate it
3: yeah no problem uh, again, it's a little frustrating, and you don't need to be an authority. I don't claim to be an authority, but, uh, you just hear the same cliches about China repeated over and over again, and, and, uh, it, it's a behemoth. I mean, obviously, the population, the economy, and the rest of it, but it is an enormous, complicated, troubled, aging country, and, and not the, you know, the the plucky young upstart that it's been portrayed as in the mainstream media for the longest time. They are. Well, all international politics is an extension of domestic politics, as we try to uh, remind you all from time to time. And countries often express their uh, their difficulties domestically by reaching out and poking somebody in the eye or, or you know, forming an alliance or or writing a treaty or something like that. But man, never forget, domestic politics are what drive international politics, and China matters these days. So you got to keep an eye on what's going on internally.
1: Armstrong and Getty, Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. What a personal privilege! Don't get brazen with me. The Armstrong and Getty Show.
4: I think Obama did like a smart move where he picked Joe Biden as his vice as his vice president because that's how he got the conservative vote. I'm very excited and I'm excited too that you are endorsing Joe Biden. And I will want you to tell my platform why are you endorsing him? Like why Good. should we vote for him? Well, and how can we spread sorry. for us to vote for Joe Biden?
5: So that's Cardi B. I didn't realize Cardi B's been around that long. But I'm old and time goes by fast how long she's been on the scene so i'm sorry i missed that what when was that i don't know but that was her talking to bernie sanders well when was that Do you know i you know what i don't know okay. it's a couple of years back and she's she's the one that says coronavirus that that clip right yep that's cardi b also coronavirus <laughs> that was her well, funny she's... video when she was walking around the house and saying look over here you know what i see coronavirus <laughs> coronavirus but so that was presumably 2020 when she was talking over right? Okay, maybe. I don't know. So, so, yeah. Anyway, uh, why am I bringing this up at all? Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is pouring water on talk of a recession from Cardi B. Andrew Ross Sorkin of CNBC did an interview with the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, and asked Yellen about, um, <laughs> do you, and said, do you know who Cardi B is? Why did he ask that? Let's start
3: there. There are a lot of people you need to talk
5: to. (laughs) And Janet Yellen, who's 75 years old, said, I mean, I don't have much time for her, but I am alive, which I guess is insinuating, yeah, I'm alive. Of course, I know who Cardi B is. I wouldn't expect you to know. Well, maybe my parents do know who Cardi B is. I'd have to ask them. I'd be willing
3: to bet four figures that my dad does not know of Cardi B.
5: Well, does he listen to our show? If my parents know of Cardi B, it's from listening to the show. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think he does. Wow, he doesn't listen to you. He likes uh... Howard Stern. What, the no, I don't, he's guy's heard at Rush's show? He's heard enough of my crap, I think, probably. Is it Clay Travis guy? <laughs> I have no idea. He's heard enough of my crap. <laughs> I didn't listen to you until you're 18 you left the house. I don't need to hear anymore. <laughs> Get
3: out and he changed the locks.
5: Anyway, so uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin is a serious. Um, uh, financial journalist, written many books, and does a show on CNBC, uh, asks the Treasury Secretary, do you know who Cardi B is? And she says, I mean, I don't have much time for her, but I am alive. Sorkin then pointed to a recent tweet from the rapper, in which she asked her 23 million followers, yes, Cardi oh. B has 23 million Twitter followers, when y'all think they're going to announce that we're going into a recession, she said. And, uh, Janet Yellen was asked to respond to that for some reason by Andrew Ross Sorkin of, uh, of CNBC. And she said, well, don't look for me to announce it. I'm not going to announce it. I don't think we're going to have a recession. We have a very strong re- economy. I know people are upset, and rightfully so. But there's nothing to su- suggest inflation is uh, leading to a recession right now. Okay, but whatever. There you go. She then was asked to respond
3: to Snoop Dogg's uh, shock at the rise in the core inflation rizzle-dizzle.
5: <laughs> I mean, what what? I don't know. yeah, I just I, the, the really the, the interesting part of that story is the fact that a financial journalist had the Treasury secretary respond to Cardi B's question about a recession. <laughs> For some reason. Crime is up. Let's talk protection with Simply Safe.
3: Is there anything that matters more than the safety of yourself and your loved ones? Of course there isn't. So isn't it strange that so many home security companies don't act that way? That's why we love Simply Safe Home Security. Their advanced security technology helps us sleep at night and they always put you and your family's safety first.
5: Yeah, Simply Safe's monitoring agents truly care about your well-being and are highly trained to help keep you calm and safe during stressful situations, staying on the line with you until help arrives.
3: And with their 24-7 professional monitoring, Simply Safe's agents call you the moment a threat is detected and dispatch police or first responders
5: in an emergency, even if you're not at home or can't be reached. Look, you go to the website, you customize the system for your home. It comes to your house, you set it up in about 30 minutes, less than a dollar a day.
3: So affordable, but more effective than the others. So go ahead, customize that perfect system for your home in a few minutes at simplysafecom slash armstrong. Go today, use our code, claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. Go to simplysafecom slash armstrong. So I was thinking about uh, when you mentioned earlier that this is the highest rate of inflation in May since 1981. I was going to make a series of jokes in my inimitable style about 1981, but I went back to uh, look at the top albums of 1981.
5: Uh, back in Black, ACDC, Tattoo You, Rolling Stones.
3: Uh, you're partly right. Uh, Double Fantasy by John Lennon Yoko Ono started the year number one, followed by High Infidelity by REO Speedwagon, followed by Paradise Theater by Sticks, followed by High Infidelity, followed by Paradise Theater, followed by High Infidelity, which went back and forth for like four months at number one then you got kim carnes
5: timeless mistaken identity which was number 1 for f- 5 weeks that's uh, you- based on betty davis eyes of the smash yes. hit sung by the gravelly voiced rocker
3: the moody blues long distance voyager which i think is a very good album pat benatar was up there foreigners 4 stevie nicks or journey's escape and then the rolling stones to you and then foreigner 4 again and then ACDC did make the charts in 1981, Jack. but it was with, for those about to rock, we salute you. There you go. Uh Leaving out the best album of 1981, Rush's Moving Pictures, but that's okay. That which is best isn't always pop- most popular. Uh, last time inflation was oh, this I, high. I know I had a point in bringing that up. I know I had a point. Every single one of those number one albums could be described as a rock album. Album, a guitar-based rock album. That was the pop music at the time. Now I'd like to uh, take a look at the, the, of course, nobody buys album. Nope. But the top whatever the hell of today, and it's changed completely. <laughs> the
5: top whatever the hell. Well, I don't um, know,
3: what is it, downloads or or, or or streams? I guess it's streams, right?
5: The last time inflation was this high, I had a full head of hair. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> Sad. Sad.
3: So I, I think the first time I heard about what we're about to discuss may have been from our good friend Tim or Tim the lawyer, who mentioned you guys have no idea how far left law schools have swung um, all over the country. And, I, you know, if I were going to try to fundamentally uh, change a country and I could only pick a few sectors that I got to control, you know, I'd probably go with uh, media and education, I mean, if I could get right through law schools, boy, that'd be a good one. And and whatever your cultural leaders are, your movie and TV makers, I think I'd probably want to grab them. And if I, you give me those three, and I'm 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 going to succeed. Well, you know, we've been talking about elementary education and how left it's gone and the, the issues in schools. I mean, I've got a story here about a Virginia district being stu- sued by parents because they're being taught the loathsome, loathsome, uh, woke uh, racial theory stuff uh but again law schools um have gone way way left too and the reason that's important is is pretty obvious right uh the folks who craft and interpret the laws are now way out there uh extremists and there's a piece uh, in substack that i found really interesting then i'll get to something kind of specific but um this guy's name is Aaron Siberium and he published under Barry Weiss's substack um But he talks about the adversarial legal system in which both sides of a dispute are represented vigorously by attorneys with vested interests in winning. It's the heart of our constitutional order. And since time immemorial, law schools have tried to prepare their students to take a part in that system. Not so much anymore. Now the politicization, tribalism, of campus life have crowded out old-fashioned expectations about justice and neutrality. The imperatives of race, gender, and identity are more important to more and more law students than due process. More important than the presumption of innocence. More important than all the norms and values at the foundation of what we think of as the rule of law. And he gives a pretty good little explanation of critical race theory as it is dealt with in law school. Not the way it's been kind of dumbed down and, and turned into something else to become your woke, uh, uh, race-baiting, anti-racism in in schools. But the actual critical race theory, as it came to be called in the 1980s, began as a critique of the neutral principles of justice. The argument went like this. Since the United States was systemically racist, since racism was baked into our political, legal, economic, and cultural institutions, neutrality, the conviction that the system should not seek to benefit any one group, camouflaged and even compounded the racism. The only way to undo it was abandon all pretense of neutrality and to be unneutral. To tip the scales of justice in favor of those who never had a fair shake to begin with. And this was a very, very fringe theory for a very long time. But now it's spread like wildfire through our nation's law schools. Starting this fall, Georgetown Law School, perhaps you've heard of it, will require all students to take a class on the importance of questioning the law's neutrality. That's one of the core classes and assisting, assessing its differential effect on subordinated groups, et cetera. Questioning wow. the law's neutrality. Wow. As of last month, the American Bar Association is requiring all accredited law schools to, quote, provide education to law students on bias, cross-cultural competency, and racism, both at the start of the law school and at least once again before graduation. That's in addition to a mandatory legal ethics class, which now must instruct students that they have a duty as lawyers to, quote, eliminate racism. Never mind the fact that many of these places define racism as disagreeing with the so-called anti-racism doctrines. Which brings us to a really interesting article
5: from Pasigal, uh, Pacific pa, Pasigal, Pacific Legal. Uh, it's another sign of white supremacy, making up words. Pacific Legal
3: Foundation at PacificLegal.org. We have supported Pacific Legal Foundation for a very, very long time. Uh, and they do fabulous work. Um, but they uh, recently put out a piece that says California's universities once required faculty to sign an anti-communist oath. And, uh, and they mentioned that, uh, you know, whatever the reasons may be, uh, you know, nobody looks back on that as a fine time and a good thing to do. Um, whatever the dogma du jour may be, compelled submission to political beliefs is poison to free thought and the search for truth. Here's what's happening now. The California Community College Administration has just adopted a rule that will require faculty to use diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility principles and anti-racism in their teaching. All of them in every class. DEIA, which goes by other names as well, and anti-racism are labels for a family of controversial tenets from the belief that minority groups should enjoy special privileges in hiring, college admissions and so forth, to the broader view that capitalism, the free market, and similar bedrock institutions must be uprooted to address systemic racism. And proponents of anti-racism argue
5: that anyone who does not support these deeply divisive concepts is, in fact, a racist. Yeah, it's all in how they're going to define that whole anti-racism thing. But in most of the definitions that are used today, that's that's not good. Well,
3: right. And and let's not gloss over the fact that part of the argument. And this is not like, uh, uh, you know, a couple of people have espoused this. No, this is at the core of it. Say because of systemic racism, all of the institutions of this country are have racism baked into them. Therefore, all of them must be uprooted and destroyed. From our court system to the Supreme Court to the Constitution to the Bill of Rights to our schools, everything must be uprooted. Boy, that's a- and changed. And they're now requiring all. Instructors in the California Community
5: College System to sign an oath that they will teach that. That's a tough situation to be in. If you want a job teaching history 101 at the local community college and you got to sign that oath. Yeah. Holy cow. And again, if you're not familiar
3: with Pacific Legal Foundation, this is not, you know, one of your wackadoodle out there right wing websites that tries to sell you some fake supplement while well, you're reading about how, uh, you know, there's there's a, a child sex ring in a pizza joint. OK, Pacific Legal Foundation is one of the most highly respected, time honored uh, conservative organizations in America. They do fabulous work and they do it soberly. So there's a little more to this. California's uh, community colleges want to require all faculty to preach this political creed in the classroom. The rule states, quote, faculty members shall employ teaching and learning practices and curriculum that reflect DEIA and anti-racist principles. Faculty supervisors must, quote, place a significant emphasis on DEIA competencies in employee evaluation and tenure review processes. Close quote. Administrators must apply these principles to virtually all aspects of operating the school, including, quote, funding allocations, decision making, planning, and program review processes. College leadership views the anti-racism philosophy as a cornerstone of their mission. And remember, if you oppose any of those policies, that makes you what? A stick in the mud? A jerk? A conservative? No. It makes you a racist. Because those are anti-racism policies, or that's what they uh, call themselves. Just a little more on this. College leadership views uh, the anti-racism f- racism philosophy as a cornerstone of their mission. In a recent meeting, Deputy Chancellor Daisy Gonzalez said community colleges show, should, quote, inst- be institutionalizing equity as a core function of our work. Uh, Likewise asserted, uh, I'm sorry, the president of the academic Senate likewise asserted that anti-racism should be, quote, embedded in everything we do. College Curriculum Committee has drafted a model principles and practices regarding DEIA in the classroom that make clear just how savagely partisan this framework is. For instance, the committee considers teaching from an individualist perspective to be a Eurocentric practice that should be jettisoned in favor of a collectivism perspective. Likewise, teachers are expected to use a social justice lens in all disciplines. Pacific Legal Foundation writes, the message is clear. Faculty must adopt and teach a specific partisan worldview or be driven out of the classroom. Well, I'm running out of time. There's actually more to this. I'm glad they're fighting this.
5: It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out.
3: Yeah, I am, uh, again, redoubling my support for uh, the Pacific Legal Foundation. Also, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, which has announced they are now moving beyond college campuses because the ACLU has, and they've admitted this, they've abandoned free speech as their primary uh, focus. So, uh, FIRE.org is now the place
1: to go.
0: Armstrong and Getty.
3: Uh, I talked a great deal yesterday about Matt Walsh's new documentary, What is a Woman? And Matt Taibbi died in the wool lefty, saying it was really good. It made a lot of good points. And that the whole transgender factory apparatus of the so-called counselors and the surgeons and the people giving drugs to children and the rest of it, it's all sick. Um And... Uh, And also, uh, I've heard a number of very reasonable trans people or those who sympathize with them say, hey, look, it's if you are accepting of trans people and believe in all the rights and kindness and the rest of it, that doesn't mean you're obliged to say it's fine for biological males to whoop the hell out of women in sports. Those two things are not connected, not at all. And that's, you know, where I come from. So uh, various organizations, particularly kind of wokey ones, are having trouble tr- trying to figure out how to deal with this. And I like this. This is the, a race that I know nothing about. It's called the Thunder Crit Bicycling Race, which I guess is a big deal. But again, I know nothing about it. And they put out an official statement. First of all, they they go on and on talking about how we've always strived for equality, open, inclusive, gender identity should never be discriminated against, uh, blah, 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 gender expression, I'm just throwing phrases at you to give you the flavor of this thing. Uh, We realize that binary racing categories are no longer fit for the purpose. Well, yes, they are. They're fine. But anyway, it shouldn't be up to racers who do not identify with traditional categories to face pressure to fit into them or be excluded or face intrusive questioning or for a third category to be created, which further others them in the sport. It's time for the categories themselves to change and become more inclusive. I'm thinking, all right, where are you going with this? I think you're going to like this. Therefore, we say goodbye to gendered race categories. The men's race and women's races are no more. Welcome to the new Thundercrit categories, which are based on the principles that the best and most fun competition is a fair and inclusive competition, where the performance level of the competitors in each category is similar to those around them. We have created two new race categories, Thunder and Lightning, that take the physical performance, of cis men or cis women is the starting point of each, and invites those of similar ability to race in that category, regardless of gender. I can't decide if they've intentionally done something really clever to restore sanity, or if they've accidentally done something really clever to restore sanity.
5: I think it's the former, and they're trying to keep the political heat off of them. I think they've done really good cover of trying to figure out a way to deal with the current situation. If so, they're
3: brilliant. Here, here are the
5: details. And this is from their official statement. It's a radical
3: rethink of what a race could look like. Celebrating the differences between riders, but offering a level playing field in terms of competition. The Thunder category is for cis men. And... Non binary people whose physical performance aligns most with cis men or trans men and women whose physical performance aligns most closely with
5: cis men. Yeah. In I, other words, you ride like a dude, you're in this category. Yeah. I think, I think they have cleverly tried, figured out a way to get around the problem. You got times like a dude. You're in this category.
3: You got a heart, lungs, bones, and muscle mass that like, uh, that's like a dude's. You're riding in the thunder category. Then the lightning category, obviously, is for cis women, non-binary people whose physical performance aligns with cis women, or trans men and women whose physical performance aligns mostly with
5: cis women. But what a guy like me who is not very good at anything, my, uh, my abilities would align with most of the female scores probably so um or just align with sad <laughs> <laughs> so would i end up in that category or how's that work Oh well, jack we've talked to our
3: thunder racers and our lightning racers and they said let them race wherever you want exactly
5: <laughs> and so somebody would say that guy over there he's a dude and don't, don't worry about it yeah don't worry about
4: it, don't worry
3: about it. <laughs> here are some notes Cis people cannot choose their racing category. Cis men will race in the Thunder category. Cis women will race in the Lightning category. Well, that seems to be discriminating against the uh, cisgender types, but we recognize that this new format may be confusing. It's not the least bit confusing. <laughs> so if you're not sure, please email us. We'll be, ha- we'll be happy to help you choose the right
5: category. I like it when people say stuff like that. I realize all this is very confusing. No, it's not. It's very simple. Let's see.
3: Transphobic behavior will not be uh, tolerated. We will not require any proof of medical treatment. Edge lords will not be tolerated. Somebody help me.
5: Edge lords? Is that something we can say on the air? I don't, even I don't know what even, that
3: is. is. Is that loathsome or horrific? I don't I assume it's not since it's in this official. Can somebody Google what the hell is an
5: edge lord? You might have to go to the Urban Dictionary, or is that a legal term? Is that Young Alex piping in? Alex, that yeah, is me. It's it's somebody who's overdramatic for no good reason, oh, like a drama queen. Oh, so, th- th- have you heard this expression before? I have. It's normally used online. It's somebody with just like a, an explosive persona that tries to get a reaction out of people. Okay, meaning that's... like everybody on Twitter, basically. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I'm glad you said that. I I, I real I just remembered. I come across this on uh, a Reddit thread of something the other day. That's probably the sort of place you would hear this. Edgelords, they were referring to, him, and I had no idea if that was a video game or whatever. Okay, Food, edge, edge. Well, I've, I've been. I'm a bit of an edge I'm a bit of an edge lord now and then, so you know, and a drama queen.
3: So, what are you going to do? Uh, so like, for
5: entertainment purposes only,
3: uh, certainly. Uh, they say we're open to constructive feedback. We don't have all the answers and recognize it's not necessarily a perfect solution. So we're open to ideas and suggestions how we can improve in the future. So, I, you know, I, I think this is clever. If your performance aligns most closely with dudes, you're in this category. All right. You can call yourself a dude or a woman or pangender or a giraffe or, or, or her royal highness, Queen Elizabeth. You could call yourself anything you want. But if you're obviously a dude looking person who races like a dude, you're over here.
5: So, all what, right. So what would they have done with Babe uh, Dickerson, Zaharis back in the day, the, the dominant female athlete? To the early twentieth century, would she have had to compete in the men's category then? Oh, I don't think so. Because for
3: all of her prowess, I don't think she was that fast and strong. She was way better than most of the gals.
5: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, you know, I would just, I, I would, I wouldn't want to eliminate. Like if you end up with like a super standout, like Usain Bolt type woman that just dominates everybody. But it's, she's she's full on woman. Yeah, uh, this, this can get a little complicated, especially
3: for, for women, but maybe not in t- just for women, because there are those cases, the gals who have the, uh, internal testicles that just in fetal development, they de- develop both, uh, ovaries and testicles. Yeah. And so they have a huge uh, testosterone advantage. I, I think at some point, maybe not before long, there will be like, uh, you know, uh, girly girls, uh medium girls and then butch girls and maybe there'll be a category for each of them because then it will come down to okay who trained the hardest who has the most discipline the best uh, nutrition the best coaching whatever I mean because you got some really big strong butch looking woman uh and I mean no disrespect I'm not making any sort of joke I mean M- martina nevertolova for instance was a much more masculine woman than like a Chrissy everett for instance she hates both skilled all skill tennis. she
5: players. hates all this stuff by the <laughs> way
3: Oh, I know she does, which is interesting because she considers herself a woman, period, a lesbian, but a woman, um, a lesbian and a woman, I should say. Um But so particularly with since we're looking for strongest, fastest, in some cases, biggest, most skilledest with dudes, it's easy because that's almost always the most masculine guys. Well, a couple of sports aside, like golf, for instance. Um, golfers are built like Olympic swimmers these days if you're not paying attention to the sport. Um, but you can have a guy with a pot belly in a cigarette in his mouth being an outstanding golfer so you know but again that's right golf is a game not a sport because you can gain weight while you're doing it and that's the dividing line jim rome gets full credit for that standard but but within women it's a little more difficult uh so i don't know where this goes in the future but having big hulking biological dudes whoop up on women ain't where it's going i guarantee you that armstrong and get